Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Ryan, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. It is a pleasure to have you here. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. So I would love it if we could dive in a little bit into Valkyrie and hear more about what led you to starting this business. And, you know, we'd love to learn a little bit more about the drone space. Yeah, sure. So this is something we've been working on, my my co-founder Alex and I, uh, since 2013. That was really when we started seeing a lot of commercial capabilities of drones, and they were really starting to move out of the the military sphere. And so that's when we started looking at what are the opportunities at hand and what are the, you know, roadmap for where this technology is going to be. You know, military technology tends to lead the commercial market by about 20 years. And so we were anticipating right about 2020. And so we started working on primarily what's the customer interface, right? Drones, they have a lot of spinning blades, they're fast moving aerial vehicles, usually not inherently something you want customers interacting with. And so we started looking at what does that customer interaction look like? And that really led us to the path of building landing stations, mailboxes, and all around drone infrastructure. That's really where our bread and butter is. So, you know, for listeners edification, you are not yourselves building the drones that are flying. You're building everything that basically needs to exist on the ground in order to have the infrastructure in place. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the drone market is very saturated. There's a lot of companies working on drones. And, you know, for an early stage company like us, there would need to be a lot of resources to get incremental improvements in the drone space. And so we really focused more on how does the customer do this as conveniently as possible. So, yep, landing stations and, and mailboxes. When in your product discovery product you know evolution did you realize did you start to feel like the actual drone space was saturated when did that sort of light bulb hit for you guys it hit pretty early on we started doing a lot of research on what patents were out there what was the ip landscape like and we realized uh, especially early on i mean drones are not inherently that new right? Military has been looking into this for quite some time. And then you look at, you know, helicopters and other aerial vehicles that have been around and the improvements for what was going to happen on the drone. They're really, it just, there was going to be a lot of incremental change, not as much on the, you know, ground shaking, market shattering type changes. And so to go after that side of it, both from a patent point of view, as well as deploying resources towards prototyping, you know, we weren't looking to necessarily reinvent the wheel. Uh, we wanted to ride that wave that all of these other companies were doing those improvements. And how do we find a way to make it uh, more efficient and more cost effective and safer. Uh, and so that's really why we picked the infrastructure as opposed to the drones themselves. So do you guys now currently, I guess, what's the uh, status of the product today? Is it live in any in any markets? Is it, you know, currently, uh, is it currently receiving drones? How is it? How has your uh, progress been today? It's been great. We actually have a number of stations deployed for various integrations with partners around North America and uh, we're really building up the uh, the order log right now, um, getting more and more interest by the day. 
Is there a software component to this as well? I mean, do consumers download an app? How, how does a consumer, can you walk us through the sort of the consumer end-to-end journey with, with your stations? Yeah, actually, the software component is one of the, the biggest pieces of what we're doing, right? It's the hardware is important for the drone interaction, but that doesn't happen you know, by itself. And so uh, we have a back-end cloud that speaks to the drone, does all the authentication. Um, when the drone comes in, it you know signals the landing station that it's there, begins the landing sequence and coordinates a lot of that process. Our big claim to fame is that we're universal, right? So we really piggyback on what the drone's already doing within the network, and we just add our software into you know, more or less make it much more efficient, build that chain of custody and that deconfliction of the airspace. And, and the customer interacts through our app. We do have an app and that's how they access the box. They, you know, schedule everything. It's all very, very simplified through our app. So the customers would download an app and then the, the drone companies just call on our APIs. And what kind of packages today can these stations service? You know, how big and and I guess what are kind of the most commonly used, most commonly sort of used packages delivery method, would you say? So right now, our commercial landing station, that's the one we're really pushing out quite heavily. It takes 12 by 12 by eight boxes. We did a lot of research around what was going to work best for the drones. The limitations aren't so much on our, our landing station so much as on the size of both volume and weight that the drone can carry. And so we found what works with a majority of our partners. And that's really where we came to was that 12 by 12 by eight uh, box. And so what we're seeing right now is you know, some of our partners are, are delivering pharmaceuticals and, and medical supplies. Others are delivering food. We see some e-commerce in there. Uh, and so, you know, it's really all over the map what people are, are delivering by drones these days. From a monetization standpoint, you know, what does the revenue model look like here? Is there, I guess, who's paying for the services at the drone companies themselves? Are they paying a subscription fee to get access to this? Yeah, right now we can sell them the box and have a very modest subscription fee, or they can just do it all hardware, software as a service and pay a, a monthly cost where they get access to all of it. Because the market is a lot of closed networks right now, it's very heavily B2B, but that's slowly shifting as drones become more applicable in, in more areas. And we do expect to shift to a B2C model at some point in the coming two years or so. To me, like this is a pretty consumer-to-consumer consumer solution, consumers sending other consumers packages as opposed to, you know, uh, or am I getting this wrong? Is there a last-mile logistics component here for enterprises or, you know, retail companies looking to send consumer their goods, consumers their goods? How is that sort of interplay working? I would say it's much, much more B2C than C2C, whether it's restaurants looking to get their stuff to the consumer faster, cheaper. Drones are a great option for that. Pharmaceuticals coming from, you know, pharmacies and healthcare providers. That's really where a lot of the traction is right now. I do see eventually there might be a C2C component to this where you can put something in one of our landing stations and a you know, third-party drone comes and picks it up and takes it to somebody, uh, you know, a couple miles away and, and you're, you're transporting goods that way. But I would almost certainly say it's much heavier on the B2C right now, both retail and meal. Got it. 
And I'm I'm curious because of that sort of long term B two B B two C the fact that this is going to hit on so many different angles. What do you see as the total kind of market size of this opportunity? Do you think in 10, 20 years from now we'll just have drones flying all over the airs of Chicago, and and this will be sort of the predominant one of the really predominant ways of of last mile delivery? Yeah, I really see this as one of the great shifts in mobility. You know, you saw with trains and cars and airplanes, and I, I think drones really are the next wave of that, you know, 10 to 20 years, it's absolutely going to happen. You know, ARK Invest, Kathy Wood, she's released a report not long ago, and they're anticipating it, it could be as high as 20%. McKinsey could, they're speculating as high as 80%. So really, it's happening and it's happening fast. It's going to happen in, in such a scale. I don't think people are quite prepared for how quickly and and how much volume is going to come from drone delivery, but it's it's definitely coming. I mean, it's kind of funny. I feel like civilization started out with carrier pigeons, and now we're basically, uh, after all these years and all these innovations, we're basically moving back to electronic carrier pigeons. Yeah, it's it's a lot of times nature has figured it out best, right? And so there's no question that that's going to be the way. I mean, if you look at right now, the way you're delivering food with Grubhub or Uber Eats, right? I mean, you have this giant vehicle that has a human driver and they're carrying this tiny little sandwich across the town to, to deliver it to somebody. There's definitely more efficient ways of doing it. And drones absolutely are that more efficient way of doing it. Amazon actually ran a study a couple of years ago in what would normally cost anywhere from eight to $12 to deliver a package through a traditional 3PL. They were able to do with drones for as little as 25 cents. And so, you know, when you're looking at capitalizing on that efficiency, it's it's just a much better option nine times out of 10. What's been the regulatory or is there any kind of regulatory hurdles that have needed to sort of be crossed or still need to be crossed in implementing this at scale? Yeah, the the regulatory is really why the industry is kind of crawling the way it is. Um, You know, the FAA has been slowly releasing new uh, regulations that are getting it more and more um, to a point of adoption, right? I mean, Every year or so, we get new revisions on the rules and a little bit more is allowed. And the next big wave is the beyond visual line of sight, which is what's going to open up that you know delivery to home market. Um, we're seeing a lot of progress in Europe and Canada's moving very quickly right now. Even Australia's made some quick turns. Um, you know, China has uh, read as many as thousands of deliveries a day at this point. Um, so the U.S. is a bit of a lagger when it comes to that, but... All the trend indicators are pointing that this is going to happen in the next 18 months. So I have to ask, do you own drones at home for for fun or do you get home and you're like, I can't look at another goddamn drone today. I'm done. (laughs) We have a a pretty uh, nice fleet at the office. So that really satisfies a lot of it. I I go home and try not to think about drones all hours of all days, but it's it's hard most days. I'm curious about the kind of competitive landscape. Are there other people out there doing something similar with these types of infrastructure plays? I'm curious how you've seen that develop over the years. Obviously, we talked about the actual drone space being incredibly saturated, but you know the infrastructure around there, I'm really curious about. You know, it was very, very much us for quite some time. We have seen more pop up. You know, most of them are coming dangerously close to where our, our IP is, if not already, 
you know, jumping over that line. You know, we, we have had to take some legal action against some of them. You know, anytime you're you're ahead of the curve and it's a huge industry, you know, it's hard to quantify it sometimes. But when you look at intracampus deliveries for hospitals and, and deliveries to people's homes and pharmaceutical and food and, e- and parcels from e-commerce and all these different things, I mean, you start looking at a, a very large tens, hundreds of billions, if not even higher uh, market size. So that always attracts people. And we're seeing that now there's more and more people that are starting to jump into the landscape. But thankfully, we have an extremely broad patent portfolio with a number of granted patents already. And so that's really going to be our saving grace to you know keep our, our niche carved out. You mentioned so many different use cases, pharmaceuticals, food, packages, Have you guys envisioned yourself as being a solution for all of these things one day and built patents around that? Or are there areas where you've really just tried to focus and and narrow down your scope? Like, how are you thinking about all of the potential things that these receptacles could ultimately service? You know, we've really focused primarily on the the system and the utility of the system itself for our patent applications and, and granted patents. And so it's somewhat inconsequential, right? When you build a secure endpoint, right? And ours works for drones and it works for traditional delivery, you know, but it doesn't really matter if the drone's carrying pharmaceuticals or carrying a package from a fulfillment center or carrying a meal, right? I mean, the the goal is you don't want it left on your driveway or on your front porch. And so it doesn't so much matter to us what's in the box as much as that we're providing a secure place, the very uh, auditable chain of custody that we're effectively giving that convenience to the customer and that peace of mind to the deliverer more than anything. And a lot of that stuff just happens to be emergent properties where it's great for pharmaceuticals and great for meal delivery and packages. And it serves a lot of purposes, but that's, you know, sometimes just the nature of having an elegant solution. And when you were in the product development phase, I'm curious about how you went about trying to fill out the rest of your team. I mean, when you're taking a solution like this that has its roots in, you know, the military, for example, or that was just pioneered by the government, how did you think about going about filling out that team? And, you know, what subject matter experts did you try and really, you know, loop into your organization at the earliest stages? How did you create this functional in this successful of a team? You know, we really tried to find areas we were weak in and, and fill them. And a lot of that came to be, we wanted a crack team of engineers. So we've built out a phenomenal engineering team covering everything from the software all the way to the mechanical. And, you know, there's some of the best people I've ever worked with and they're willing to take risks and they're willing to try things. And sometimes, you know, it's the nature of R&D. Sometimes it doesn't go the way you plan, but you get great information. And so we wanted people that were willing to press the envelope a bit like that and really see what was possible, right? Looking for that right solution instead of taking the first solution. And so uh, we really prided ourselves on finding people that thought differently than us and, and people that were willing to kind of push what was possible with us. So we, we tried to find just real go-getters in each of those areas. And, you know, when you were going about building the team, I'm sure, you know, there were there was fundraising that was happening, you know, either before or after the fact. And I'm curious about the fundraising journey for for you guys. You know, 
I've had some hardware entrepreneurs on the show and I've had tons of VCs on the show. And, you know, a common sort of trope is that many VCs steer clear of hardware because of the capital intensity and, you know, hardware is hard and all those adages. How did you find that journey of, of raising capital as a founder in, you know, a, you know, in an area that requires a hardware solution? Was it, was it challenging or more challenging in any given way? Or do you think you've, you paired with the right, you know, backers from the earliest stages? You know, it's, uh, Definitely something we've experienced. A lot of VCs that are very much, you know, we want a very easy to scale SaaS platform and, you know, they tend to gravitate towards those. So we we definitely had a bit of an uphill climb and, and we're still always, you know, doing that as long as we're raising capital. But when you look at industry 4.0 and, and really what's on the cusp of about to happen, hardware is what's going to enable that next round of, of software companies, right? It's almost necessary for that to happen at this point. And because we were looking at how to best find these solutions, you know, it wasn't as much of an option for us. I mean, the hardware was very important, especially to enable our software. But uh, the fundraising, it's really about finding people that see that future that are visionary. And, you know, a lot of the times that's, that's not always in your traditional spaces. So we've looked for very forward-thinking angels. We've looked for uh, people that kind of see that drones are happening and it's an inevitability at this point. And they've been very supportive and we're very thankful for the investors that we've had. But I definitely would echo what you said, that a lot of VCs are just not primed for this space more than anything. Today, you know, looking out to the next 12 to 18 months, what does your fundraising journey look like? You know, do you anticipate needing to, you know, raise more in the future or how are you guys thinking about that? We're right in the middle of a pre-series A raise right now. So we're always looking for people that that get the vision and, and believe in the mission of the company. And, you know, anybody that does see that, we're always happy to have them reach out. You know, we're we're gearing up for some commercial opportunities and then we plan on going into our series a you know later this year so you know it seems like we're in that constant role of you know always raising money i know you hear a lot of founders say that but that's absolutely the case it's got to be challenging and i think from the hardware perspective i can totally echo that i think but yeah to your point there's so many solutions we're now seeing today and especially you know people say wearables are their own different kind of category but like to me, that always just felt like a smaller type of hardware, right? You know, you're if you're okay with the idea of whoops, whoops, and and you're sort of making investments in the wearable space, you should probably be okay with taking a look at taking a look at hardware solutions. So I think that's always a funny dichotomy that I've noticed. But um, yeah, I'm curious about your background a little bit. I'm, I'm curious about did you do you feel like you took any lessons away from the military during this time as an entrepreneur? Have you been able to sort of extract any lessons from that time period and use them? in your organization as a leader? Yeah, prior to the National Guard, I was uh, in the 75th Ranger Regiment and, and did a few tours overseas. And I would say a majority of how I operate and the fundamentals I live by came from uh, Ranger Regiment. You know, it was a very high-paced environment and everybody you worked with was at the top of their game. And, and you know, we, we didn't really settle for anything other than your best. And so you really take that and, and that at Valkyrie and that's kind of built into our fabric at this point. So I would say most of who I am as an entrepreneur comes from my Ranger background. 
And during that time, did, did you ever kind of, when you were younger, envision yourself becoming an entrepreneur of a, of a sort of successful endeavor? Like, did you ever really think you were going to be a founder? Or is this something that, you know, as you got into adult life, you realized you wanted to do? How did you sort of see this, your career playing out? You know, when I was younger, I, I didn't think I would be in business. You know, I was very much focused on the goal of, you know, being in special operations and, and gearing towards that. But, you know, the older I got, the more I realized that's really where the the cutting edge is. And so, you know, you always hear it when you meet an inventor, right? It's that, that idea just gnaws at them and they can't sleep and they can't focus on anything else besides getting that idea out there. And that was absolutely the case for us. You know, we we once we this idea hit us, it was just nonstop. You know, we had to move forward. And I think it would have been nothing but regret had we not as hard as the road may be sometimes. So um, we very much are, uh, you know, focusing on on changing the world through our invention. And it's, you know, something that I can't see myself doing anything but and, and really kind of what I eat, breathe and sleep. But, you know, it wasn't uh, something I envisioned when I was a kid by any means. What has it been like to start this company and, and to be an entrepreneur in the Chicago ecosystem, especially? I'm curious about your kind of experiences here. You know, it's it's definitely a roller coaster, right? I mean, like any startup, you have your ups and downs and, you know, you get a new prototype and then find out something doesn't work and, and you got to go and change the design. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that happen like that, um, that, you know, you have big wins and some days you have, you have bad days. Right. But, um, I was a bit surprised by the Chicago ecosystem. You know, I really thought, you know, you hear a lot about how forward thinking it is and how Chicago's uh, logistics headquarters and, and kind of the, the shining star of logistics in the U S and so it seemed like a match made in heaven. Um, but we found that, um, there's a lot less, uh, risk uh, appetite in a lot of the institutional investors, you know, the Chicago is notorious for wanting to raise money for software only. And it seems like a lot of the, uh, big companies that are coming out of Chicago these days are absolutely software companies. And so, um, you know, that was, that was something we learned the hard way. Um, you know, that it's not a very hardware friendly city. It's just not. Yep. It's something that I've heard as well. And it's it's really curious to me. And I think a theory that I heard uh, once upon a time was, you know, the tradition of Chicago is that many of the successful angels, many of the successful sort of industries in the past were, you know, in insurance, in consulting and in banking. So there was a little bit less of that, you know, innovative risk taking tech kind of DNA here. And that's how it was always structured for decades. And you know, maybe it can definitely be argued. I personally think that the tech ecosystem here is growing and that will hopefully change in the next decades to come. But it, you're saying something that has definitely been echoed before. And I think to me, it seems like it goes back to sort of the the foundations of what kind of the city was built on in the past. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's as much as the tech ecosystem is growing. What was the latest number? I heard 11 unicorns this year out of Chicago so far. Yeah, and- yep. They're definitely making moves, but all of them are, are software plays. That seems to be the, uh, you know, bread and butter of the the tech in this town. And so, you know, I'm with you. I hope it starts shifting more towards hardware. And I really think that's the future of tech is a lot of this hardware enabled uh, 
you know, opportunities, but we're still very much in the early days of that. I'm curious about outside of Silicon Valley, are there pockets of the country, maybe Boston, that are very focused or very receptive to hardware startups? Have you guys ever come across kind of any trends that you can speak to on that front? I mean, Silicon Valley's always been, Boston's definitely a new one. You know, we're starting to see it more and more in different pockets of the country. There's not really one that's standing out more than the other. You know, you're starting to see a lot in, in Miami and, and Austin and some of these places that, you know, you probably wouldn't traditionally think of prior to. And, you know, my fingers are crossed that Chicago is going to start being one of those hardware hubs as well. But yeah, definitely Silicon Valley and Boston, those two are really, uh, they've been on the map for a little while. Ryan, this has been amazing. You know, in our closing time, I'd love to hear if there's any kind of resources, either as a founder or as a hardware tech founder, uh, that you like to follow. Thought leaders, you know, where you try and go to learn as much as you can about, you know, the art of being a founder. You know, it's uh, kind of a conglomerate of of what I've seen. Right, uh, CDL was a great, great program for us to be a part of, and. You know, we're part of uh, Hub ADA, which just got acquired by 1871. And, um, you know, there's a lot of drone specific stuff. So I would say get a very diverse group of mentors and and places you find your information and and try and find what works best for your individual company. But um, I don't know that there's a one stop shop for anything in this. Did you guys go through CDL last year? Yeah, yeah, we graduated in 2020. Yeah, they're, they what they do up there is so amazing. I, I can second that, I think. I know there's different pockets. I'm not sure which one you were in, but um, you know, I've, I've gotten the opportunity to meet some of the ter- people in the Toronto region and who are tied in with CDL. And I, I, I think it's a very under underexposed. People really haven't heard about it as much as I think they should have. And I completely agree. I think the people up there are, are fantastic. Yeah, we went through the supply chain and logistics cohort up in uh, Montreal and I am so thankful that we did. Uh, I've gotten some amazing mentors and connections out of it. And, you know, CDL is a top-notch group. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you so much for hopping on the show today. We really appreciate it. I think I can speak for everybody. We're fascinated by what you're working on. We can't wait to see more of those receptables start to, you know, come up and pop up around the Chicagoland area and abroad and, and, and everywhere. So thank you so much and all the best of luck to you and everyone over at Valkyrie. Really appreciate it, and thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure and honor. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.